Good morning. Welcome. My name is Ricardo. I'm the associate pastor here. We just want to welcome you for visiting with us this morning. Thank you for joining us this morning as we worship our Lord and our God. I just wanted to just thank everyone who gave me the opportunity the other week to go out and bring the word and preach at Steel 10. Thank you, Pastor Wes and everyone who kind of stepped up and stepped in at that moment. It's always great to go there and bring God's word before them and to see what God is doing. And they are going to be moving to a new location here soon. And they're excited about moving to a residential area to be able to reach their community. And so just be praying for Steelton and for their church as they're moving. And Lord willing, they're looking to evangelize more. And hopefully we'll have an opportunity here soon to go out there and bless them with our service when they move. But if you're with us last week, we were in Mark chapter 4, and if you have your bulletin in front of you, you'll notice that we're going to be continuing in the book of Mark. We're going to be opening up chapter 5 here, and if you can see, we're going to be looking at the first 20 verses of chapter 5. If I was with you guys three weeks ago when I had the opportunity to bring in God's Word here, and we're opening up chapter 4, and we're looking at the first 20 verses of that as well. It's not something that I'm looking for. I don't go around asking, Wes, can I just have all the 20 verses? Give me all of them. It's just as we plan out the schedule, we, this is where we land and this is where we'll be at today. Today's narrative, if you will, it, it, it's following right after what we saw happen last week. It takes place immediately following the calming of the storm at the end of chapter 4. If you were with us last week, Pastor Wesley talked about how Jesus is able to command the wind and the waves. He goes, peace, be still. And the wind and the waves listen, and how that speaks to Jesus' sovereign power over all things, even over creation, not just mankind, but even over the winds, over the waves, over, over the mountains. He is reigning sovereign over all of those, and we see that in just the fact that he says, peace, be still, and the wind ceased. And our story takes place immediately following that. And really what we're going to see is the underlining theme this week and the next couple weeks is that of Jesus' power and authority. We saw that last week with his power and authority over the wind and the waves. We're going to see it today with his power and authority over Satan and his demons. We'll see it over the next couple weeks over Jesus' power over sickness, over death and disease and things of like that. So that leads me, if you will, to my main idea if there's anything I want you to leave with today, it's that this is that Jesus has the power to save people from their darkest moments and their darker sins and restore them back to God. Jesus has the power to save people from their darkest moments and their darkest sins and restore them back to God. We're going to be reading Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Mark writes, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of Genesis. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was also crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. 
And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down into the steep bank, into the sea, and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and towed it into the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was had happened. And when they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but he said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before your throne this morning. We come fully acknowledging that we are not worthy of all that you've given us. We are not worthy of all the blessings that you have bestowed upon us, Father. For that reason, we give you praises. We, we humble ourselves before you, and we thank you for all of that, Father. Lord, as we open up your word today, as we continue to study the gospel of Mark, we ask that you meet us where we're at. You open our eyes, our hearts to see just how wonderful and powerful and great you are, Father. That despite where we may be in life, despite what we have going on, you still call us to yourself. You still save us. You still restore us. And you still forgive us of all of our trespasses, Father. Lord, we ask that as we spend the next several moments in your word, that we glean from it, we learn from it. You convict us in areas where we're not giving it over to you, Father. We ask that you eliminate any distractions we may have today. We ask that you be with the children, Lord, and their children's church as they have their lesson, Father. May their hearts and eyes start to be open to the wonders of the gospel, Father. May you call them to yourself, Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be edifying to you and to your people, Father. We pray all this in your son's mighty and powerful name. And his people said, Amen. Amen. So we see here Jesus and his disciples are arriving in Granassus, which is just on the other side of the lake. It's about a two-hour trip, usually by boat, to get from where Jesus was to where they're at now. And it obviously didn't take that long as they came upon the storm. This area here is really, it's unlike the area where Jesus was, where it was strictly Jewish. You have a mix of Jews and Gentiles throughout this region here. And we see this evident that the fact that there was a herd of pigs in, in verse 13. We know that pigs would have been considered unclean by the Jewish people. And also we see this in verse 20 when he says that he went out to the capitalists. This idea of the capitalists was known as these 10 Gentile cities that were loosely connected. They were, as James notes, James Brooks notes, that they were set free from Jewish captation by Pompeii in 63 B.C. So this area now that we have that Jesus is in, it's a heavily Gentile region. And he's coming here to perform miracles and to bring, to just tell people of who he is. And so we don't know what's happening. We don't know what the disciples are expecting. They just finished seeing Jesus calm the storm. 
they get to their destination and who knows what they're expected to do. Maybe they're thinking we have a break. Maybe they're just happy to be back on dry land after the storm. Whatever it is they were expecting, it's not this man that meets them. As we see in verse 2, this man immediately, as soon as they dock their boat, this man comes running from afar, and we see in verse 6, screaming, crying out to them. And it says that he is an unclean spirit, or he is a demon-possessed man. We know that because we see that in verses 15, 16, and 18, where they describe him as being demon-possessed. And the demon is simply one of Satan's workers, if you will. He is one of those angels that were cast out of heaven with Satan. We see that in Revelations 12. And the sole purpose of these demons, the sole purpose of Satan is to really oppose God here on earth, to distort the gospel, to oppose God's people, to destroy, to to just diminish God's creation in, in, in his mankind. And we'll see that in today's scripture. That's their purpose. We see that also in John 10.10 where he says the thief, that is Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And we see that played out so much in this verse today. This is really, Mark spends a lot of time focusing on the demon here where we see this in the other gospels. We see this in Matthew. We see this in Mark. But they don't give us as much detail of the man. So we see that really they, they are trying to destroy this man. This leads me to my first point. My first heading, if you will, subheading, the destructiveness of Satan. We're going to see just how much Satan really seeks to destroy, kill from mankind. We see this in the fact that this man comes running, and he's, evident, he's running towards them. And from the jump, you know, the disciples are like, something's not right. His man is coming to us. He's running. He's screaming at us. We know that he's not clothed. We see that from verse 15 when they're surprised that he's clothed. But also in Luke's account, it tells us that the man had not worn clothes for a really long time. So imagine just arriving to the sea and you're on land now. And from a distance, you see a man come running, screaming at you naked. His life has been in shambles. We know that this man has lived a lonely life because he's lived among the tombs. It tells us in verse 3. That he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him, no one, not even with a chain. These tombs were usually, they were carved out of rocks on the hillside. And usually this was where they would go and put dead bodies in. This was on the outskirts of town where no one else would be. And it was on the outskirts because they believed that if you were to touch a dead body, you were unclean. And you had to go through a certain process to be considered clean. You have to quarantine, if you will, for seven days, then go through a ritual rites of cleaning rites. And we see that in Numbers 19. This man probably lived in the tombs and he lived alone. No one wanted to go out and touch him because he was declared unclean just by simply being amongst dead bodies. The Jewish added to this, if you just touch the clothes of someone who was dead, or if you just touch the gravestone of someone who was dead, you were considered unclean. This man lived by himself. He had no family. We do know he had family because Jesus tells him to go home, but he has no one who's living with him amongst the tombs. We see in Matthew's account that there are two demons that come to Jesus and, and meet Jesus and his disciples. And it's not uncommon. We probably, Matthew probably has independent knowledge of the second man from just experiencing it himself. 
And there's not a discrepancy here, if you will, between the gospel. It's not uncommon for gospel writers to really focus on the main character when there's more than one person there. And even if you were to finish reading all of Matthew's account of this story, he ends up focusing on just one man by the end. He says there's two, but the focus shifts to just one man. So it's not that there's a discrepancy here. It's just they're all focusing really on the main man who is possessed by many demons, if you will. We also see the destruction of Satan and the fact that this man was a violent man. That they were people from his village, people from his city, were trying to subdue him. We see this in, ch- in chapter 3 and 4. That they couldn't bind him. They tried to shackle him with chains. He had been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. Or the King James Version there says no one had the strength to tame him. That's literally what that word subdue is translated. It's to tame. And and you don't try to tame human beings necessarily. What you do try to tame is wild animals, is wild beasts. It's typically if these animals have become unsafe for themselves or if they become unsafe to be around other peoples, that is when you attempt to tame them. This man had no control of himself. He was like a wild beast. He was violent. He was starting to hurt others around him. He was starting to hurt himself. We see in Matthew's account in, eight, in verse 28, it says that he was so fierce that no one could pass that way. The NSB translates to that, that he was extremely violent towards others. That if anyone came around his area, he was going to attack them. He was not going to let them by. And because of his violence, they did. They tried to subdue him, and he's breaking. He's, he's wrenching the chains apart. He's breaking the shackles that they have on his feet. They sent out probably the strongest man they can. They probably sent multiple people out to try to tame this man, and they could not tame him. So they just left him to be by himself amongst the tombs and amongst the mountains. We see the destructiveness of Satan and the fact that this guy was living in misery. His life was miserable. He was being tormented. He was being tortured by the spirits, by the demons. If you see this in verse 5, where it says, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, cutting himself with stones. The NASB says this is constantly happening. 24-7, this man is, you can just hear the cries. You can just hear him yelling. He's gashing himself with stones. As one commentator notes, he's, he's trying to take his life. He's so done with what's happening, with the demons possessing him, that he just wants to take his own life. He's living in misery. As R.C. Sproul points out, there's probably this man is up there along with Job as perhaps two of the most miserable people, those miserable lives that we see in the Bible. This man gives Job a run for his money when it comes to his misery. And there's no going back for him. People have given up on him. He's living in the tombs by himself. The town has decided that they're going to wash their hands clean of him. We've tried to tame him. We try to tie him up, and it's not working. We're just going to not go that way. We're going to ignore him. His family has probably given up on him. His closest friends have given up on him. He's clearly living a life of misery alone in the tombs and in the mountains. All hope, all hope is given up for this man. There's nowhere else to go. 
But we know that's not true. We know that there is always hope. That despite this man's life, despite his past, despite what he is currently going through, there is still hope for him because the truth still remains that Christ is supreme over all. That Christ is sovereign over all. And that no matter what is going on in this man's life, he can and he will be restored. And we'll see this in the scripture today. Just... Church family, it doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter what kind of struggles you have in life, how hard things are. There is always hope for God's children because Christ reigns supreme over all. If God saves this man, and he does, if God restores this man, which we see he does, then how much more will he do for his children? He can save us from our deepest and darkest moments, from our deepest and darkest sins. It doesn't matter how we may feel about ourselves. Christ still reigns supreme over all. Also, what we see here in the scriptures gets me to my second point. It's the power and the authority of Jesus. We're going to see this play out several different ways and little subheadings here about how we see the power and authority of Jesus on display. We see this first and foremost in the way the demons react to Jesus. We're told that they see him from afar in verse 9. And they come running out to him. Sorry, verse, verse 6 and 7. Crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In verse 6, we see that they come and they, they fall on their knees before Jesus. They can't help it. They get to Jesus and immediately the first thing they have to do is fall on their knees. This is an act of worship, if you will. Not, not a willful an act of worship. This is more, they just can't help themselves. They, they, fall, they bow before him, as the NASB says. This is an acknowledgement of Jesus' deity. These are the angels who probably recognize Jesus from when they used to worship him before they were cast out of heaven. They see Jesus from afar. They know who he is, and they can't help but when they come before his presence to bow down, to fall on their knees, and then they acknowledge Jesus for who he is. says, the son of the most high God. One commentator knows this isn't a messianic designation, but rather a divine one. They understand who Jesus is, they are more aware of Jesus' deity than even the disciples. We see that at the end of, of chapter 4, they say to themselves, who is this man that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is he? The demons even know he is the son of the most high God. They're more aware of Jesus' deity than most people are on earth. It's not, it's not until we reach the end of, math, of Mark and Mark 15 where a human being acknowledges Jesus for who he truly is. That is the centurion soldier who says, truly, this is the Son of God. This man was demon-possessed. Demon he had demons inside of him. And I say demons, plural, because we see in verse 9, when Jesus asked the demon, what is your name? He replies, my name is Legion, for we... Or many. And Legion here isn't necessarily a proper name, but it's more of a description. As several commentators note that a legion often referred to a unit of Roman soldiers that equal to the amount of about 6,000 soldiers. 
That's not to say that's how many demons were inside this man. But when he says, I am legion for we are many, he's noting that there we have a great number. There is a great number of us within this man. And it's not that Jesus doesn't know that. He's not asking the man's name because he wants to know. He's about to do something great. And he wants his disciples and everyone around him to know what's about to happen. So he asked the demons, they need demon replies, legion. And immediately everyone is saying, there's, there's not just one inside of him. There's a great, there's a plethora, there's a great number of demons inside this man. There's a large number of hosts inside of him. And they acknowledge, you see them acknowledging the power and authority of Jesus by the mere fact that they make an earnest plea with him. They make a request that says, I adjure you by God to not torment us. Don't torment me. They're pleading with God. They're fully aware of Jesus' power. They're fully aware of his authority. They fully were that he has the intentions to evict them, if you will, from this man's life. And they're begging him, please don't torture us. Please don't torment us. The begging continues in verse 10 and 12 when they say, and he begged him earnestly not to send them out to the country. And they begged them saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. They, they realize they, they can't do nothing without Jesus' permission they realize that they are in the presence of the Son of the Most High God, the one who reigns supreme over all, who has all power, who has all authority, and they cannot move without his permission. And so they beg, send us into the pigs. Don't let us go from this country. Send us this way. And we see the power and authority Jesus seen in the fact that he, in the commands of Jesus, the way he addresses them, Right? He says in verse 8, for he was saying to them, Jesus was calling out for them as they're running to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. The fact that, that they can't move until Jesus gives them permission in verse 13 speaks to the power and authority of Jesus. He commands them to come out, and they realize at that moment that they cannot ignore what Jesus is telling them to do, that they're going to have to obey. And so they're trying to get a better deal, if you will, by asking him not to send us out of the country. Send us into the pigs, please. And we see that Jesus does. In verse 13, he gives them permission. He answers and says, yes, you may. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Just take a moment to pause here. There's a lot of people who have issue with verse 13. They look at verse 13 and they ask, why would Jesus kill 2,000 pigs? How dare he do that to these animals? It's a sad fact that we live in a day in our culture where some people value animals' lives over human lives. And so, first of all, Jesus doesn't kill the pigs. The demons do. The demons are the ones who lead the pigs into the water and who drown themselves. And people have issue with the verse 2 because they wonder, why would he just destroy these people's money, their way of income like this? And we're not told that the pigs are necessarily destroyed. I would imagine that they can still go out and take the pigs out of the water. So that's a faulty argument. But that Jesus didn't kill the pigs. The demons did. 
And just two reasons why, if you will, Jesus allows this to happen. The first being, it shows the demons and Satan's true intentions, that they're bent on destroying life. That immediately, as soon as these demons enter these pigs, they go down into the water and they drown themselves. This is what they've been trying to do with with the man for as long as they've been possessing him. They were leading him to try to kill, take his own life, and they just couldn't. And the instance that they take over these, these pigs, their, their, their purpose is accomplished. And the fact that they can kill them immediately. As I said earlier, they've come to just steal, kill, and destroy. And so by allowing this to happen, Jesus is showing their true intentions. They're showing what they were trying to do with this man, but they weren't successful. The second reason is, it shows really the importance of human life. Shows how, how more valuable, if you will, in the eyes of our God, human beings are than animals. That he would kill 2,000 pigs to save one man. That's how important life is to Jesus. R.C. Spore wrote that the compassion of Jesus, that's what drove him to destroy the pigs for the sake of one human life. And that is how valuable Human life is to our God. He's willing to do whatever it is, whether it's to kill animals, to save just one human life. So this isn't a thing to look at and be upset or be mad. It's to just praise God that he views us as so valuable. The power and authority of Jesus can be seen in the man's deliverance of the demons and and how the people, the townspeople respond to him. See in verse 13 that as soon as the demons leave in verse 13, this man's life is changed instantly. Verse 14 and 15, we read that the herdsmen have fled and they told it to the country. And all the people in the city and country, they came to see what happened. And the moment they arrived there in verse 15, and they saw and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. This man who they recognize as the man who was roaming the mountains, the man who was screaming in the tombs, who was attacking people, who just couldn't get any rest, who was gashing himself with stones. This man was just sitting there peacefully at the feet of Jesus, as peaceful as those winds and seas were when Jesus cried out, peace be still. This man is sitting there. It says he is in his right mind. He's not talking to himself. He's not blabbing. He's just sitting there quietly, and he's clothed. It mentions that he's clothed. They, they recognize he's like, this man is clothed. He's, there's something different. And their response, it says, and they were afraid. You see, they understood what happened. They were looking at this man, and they see that his life has been completely restored they see that, that he is a completely new human being, if you will. They don't recognize this man to who he was just a couple hours before. His family might see him. They might think, we have our dad back. We have our friend back. This man, this, this former de- demon-possessed man now has communion with God. His life is completely transformed. That's only possible with the God of the universe this type of transformation where this man was just screaming, attacking people, now just sitting there peacefully. This only happens with one, the one true God. And there's some of us here today who probably 
have some, we feel like we're stuck in the mire, that we have some sin in our life that has sunk us so low that, that we're starting to feel the impact eternally. Maybe people are starting to realize just how far and gone we are, and we think there is no way that God can save me. In this story here, this, this is a testimony, if you will, that God can and he will redeem his children. He can and he will save us and restore us and bring us back to communion with God. The people responded by him, by being afraid. They understood exactly how powerful Jesus, for Jesus to do what he did, to save this man, for this man to be sitting there now all calm. They understood just how powerful Jesus was because they couldn't do it. No matter how many people they sent out, no matter how many chains they put on this man, they couldn't subdue him. But they see him sitting there completely subdued at the feet of Jesus, and they realize just how powerful God is. And it says that they were afraid. And we see if we move on that they begged him to depart from their region. They realize just how powerful God is, just how much authority he must have to command these demons. And their first reaction is to please leave. They respond with fear and they're asking him to depart. Last time I was up here, we talked about that, how different people respond differently to the miracles of Jesus, to the teachings of Jesus. And this is evident here. Instead of praising him, they respond by saying, please leave us. Don't come back. The last point, if you will, it's Jesus commissions the man. Right? He sends him out. He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. See, not only does Jesus save this man, not only does he restore him, not only does he free him from these demons, like that would be good enough. If Jesus just did that, he would have done a lot for this man, but he doesn't end there. He gives this man new purpose. He says, go home to your friends and tell how much the Lord has done for you. He commissions the man now to go and share the goodness of God. Go and share the mercy that God has had on you with everyone else. As James Edward notes, this man, this healed demonic becomes the first missionary, the first preacher, if you will, sent out by Jesus. And he sends them out to the Gentiles. As I mentioned earlier, this was a heavily majority populated area by Gentile. So he sends this man out. He gives him a purpose. Speak of my goodness. Speak of the mercy that God has had for you. Share that with people. And the man does just that. Not only does he go home and he tell his family and his friend, but we're told in verse 20 that he goes into the Decapolis and starts to proclaim the goodness and mercy of God and everything that he had, had done for him. He goes above and beyond. The capitalist here, as I mentioned, is 10. Deca means 10. It's the 10 cities. He goes out, not only to his home, but to the rest of the cities, to 10 other cities. And he starts to proclaim the goodness of God. He starts to proclaim the mercy of God. He doesn't just stay home with it. He goes out through the country to share the goodness and mercy of God. And we see that, that he was successful. If you were to go forward two chapters, in chapter 7, you were going to go down to verse 31. When Jesus returns to this area, it says in verse 31 in Mark 7, that Jesus returns to the Decapolis. 
And they brought him, verse 32, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. He returns, and the first thing that happens in this area, that they begged him to leave here in, 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 in verse 16, they begged him to leave. He comes back, and they're bringing people to him. Help us. Heal this man. He can't hear. He can't talk. We see that this man was successful in Telling everyone how good and merciful God is that when Jesus returns, they cannot help but bring people to him. He was successful in his commission of going and telling people about the goodness and about the mercy of God. That God has saved him from his deepest and darkest moments. That God has forgiven his sins. That God has called him out. How great and powerful is the God that we serve. He's able to deliver this man. He's able to deliver us from our sins. In closing today, I'd like to address those here who may not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Those people who may not have a relationship with him. Don't believe in the forgiving grace and mercy of God. And it's simple. Jesus' grace and his mercy, it is for everyone. I don't know what you have going on in your life. I don't know what kind of things you're into. I don't know what kind of sin you have going. I just know that God has come to save mankind. You may feel hopeless. You may think that, that you are beyond saving. That, that if God really knew my heart, if you really knew the things that I was into, there's no way he would forgive me. There's no way that he would save me. Well, God does know. We see this in, in Psalm 42, 21, that for God knows the secrets of the hearts. He knows everything about us. He knows all the sin we've ever committed and we will commit. So if that's you today, if you are struggling to see yourself as someone who is worthy, that God will even consider saving, that God will even consider delivering them from all their mess. Just think about what God has done for this demon-possessed man. Think of the power that he has and the mercy that he has and the love that he has for this man that he forgives him and he restores him and he brings him back into communion with God. And that love and that mercy that led Jesus to deliver this man from these demons, that love and mercy is made available to us and to you as well. That whatever mistakes you have made, Whatever sins you have in your life, it's not too great for the all-powerful, for the all-loving and the all-merciful God. This peace that this demon-possessed man felt the moment that, that he was delivered from these demons, that peace can be yours. We have to understand that we are in need, that you are in need of a Savior that we are depraved and that we are sinful and that we need a saving, that if we are left to our own, there is nothing that we can do to bring peace to our life. There is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. And that is why Jesus, this all-powerful, all-loving, who has all authority, the one who reigns over everything, sovereign over everything, he's come to this earth to save sinners. That's his purpose. We see this all throughout the scriptures in 1 Timothy 1.15. We see it in Luke 19.10, Matthew 1.21. All these scriptures that speaks to Jesus coming to save sinners. 
And he does that by coming into this world, becoming fully man, taking on nature, the man's nature, becoming fully man and fully God, and walking this earth, experiencing the things that we experience, but never sinning, living a perfect and sinless life. And by doing this, he, what he does is he fulfills the law of God completely. He becomes the Lamb of God for our sins. And he goes after living a sinless life, never sinning at all, doing the things that we cannot do, following God's law completely. He gives his life for sinners. He takes our sins and, and they are laid upon him on the cross. As he's carrying that cross, as he's hanging on the cross, as he's dying on the cross, our sins, your sins, are being laid upon him. And he pays that price of death, that price that we, as human beings, should be paying. He pays that price for us. And we're told as he becomes our substitute. And in return, we're now clothed with our right, his righteousness. He's clothed in our sins, and we're clothed in his righteousness. And we're told that he dies. But it doesn't end there. You were to keep reading, he raises again from the dead three days later. And by rising again, he completes his work. He rising from the dead, he defeats sin and he defeats, he conquers death. And it's through his resurrection that he now offers to us this eternal life, that he offers to us this peace with God that can only be attained through his works. It's through his resurrection that we have that. And all you have to do is put, is repent from your sins, is to turn from them, confess your sins to God, put your faith and put your trust in the works of Jesus Christ, in the works of man, of him, and you will have eternal life. You will have peace with God today if you've confessed your sins, turn from them, repent from them, and put your faith and put your trust in the works of Jesus. And if you haven't done that, we would encourage you, talk to us. Pull me aside. I'll be out in the back. Pastor West will be around after the service. If you want to know what that means, what that looks like, please talk to someone today about what it means to put your trust and put your faith in the works of Jesus Christ. For the believer, you may feel like you, you don't have a story to tell. You may feel like you can't possibly talk about God's goodness because I don't have this great conversion story. I don't have this time where I was deep in sin and God saved me out of that. I, I've been saved all my life since I was a little kid. First of all, every conversion story is a great story. Whether you have some great thing that you've been delivered from or whether you've just been saved as long as you can remember, that is a great conversion story. Understand this, that honestly, truthfully be told, we were all like this man. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we were all dead in our trespasses. That we were all following the ways of this world, following the prince of this world, that is Satan. We were all dead to our sins. There was no one who can save themselves. So truth be told, we were all like this man. But, but Jesus comes, gives his life for us. And we've been forgiven. We've been restored to God. All of us, whether you realize or not, you've been restored to God. So whether you have a crazy conversion story or not, whether you came to life later, came to life in Christ later on, or whether you've been 
saved as long as you can remember, you have a story to tell. You've been delivered, you have been saved, and you have been restored. Anyone, anyone who has a relationship with Jesus Christ has a story to tell. Truth be told, oftentimes as I talk to people, I am encouraged, more encouraged by the stories that I see God's faithfulness in people's lives, that he's kept them, that he's held on to them ever since they were a child and never let them experience some of the heartaches of life. To see God's faithfulness in people's lives that way sometimes is more of encouragement to me than to hear the story of the man who's been delivered from great things. You may have never stumbled. You may have never backslidden, if you will. But God has been faithful to you. God has been good to keep you from those things. And that is a story worth telling. Speak of God's goodness in your life no matter what. Whether you think it's good or not, God has been faithful to you. And if you're nervous about that, starting the home as we see here in verse 19, go home and tell the others. If, you, if you're not ready to go out and tell people, tell your children about the goodness of God in your life. Tell your children about God's mercy, about God's grace in your life. Disciple them. That's where it starts. As J.C. Rowe says, our homes have to be our first attention as believers. We cannot be more concerned with going out. We have to be concerned with discipling our kids, telling them about God's mercy and about his grace in our lives. And then go out and tell people how God has been good and merciful to you. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, we come before you, God, and we thank you for your mercy and for your grace over our lives. We understand that, that we couldn't be in these seats today, that we didn't get ourselves out of bed today, that we didn't get ourselves here to this point. The reason we're here is because of your mercy and grace over our lives, Father. The fact that we get up every morning and experience new mercy is a blessing from you, Father. Sometimes we fail to realize that, just how much of a blessing it is to wake up the next day and have breath in our lives, Father. May we be remembered of your goodness and mercy in our lives. I mean, we go out and share that with people. May we tell people the way this formerly demon-possessed man went out and told the ten cities of the mercy and grace and goodness of God in his life. Give us the courage and boldness to do that, Father, as we go about the rest of this day, as we spend time with family, as we spend time with friends, as we go about in the roads are where keep us safe, Father. Keep us safe, and may we spend this day resting in your promises, Lord. Prepare us for the rest of this work week that we have ahead of us. And may we go out this week and share of your goodness and mercy and grace of our lives with people, Lord. We pray all this in your son's mighty and powerful name. People said, Amen.